As I thought about preaching to the Gospel of John about a year ago, I looked forward to several passages that I would be able to study in studying to the Gospel of John. I definitely looked forward to the prologue, John 1, 1 through 18. That was a highlight study for me. I look forward to John 3.16. Never in my Christian life have I studied that gospel in miniature in John 3. In our Lord's dialogue with Nicodemus, and we went through that, and that was a joy. I look forward to our Lord's dialogue with the Samaritan woman in John 4, and that was awesome. I look forward to John 11, raising of Lazarus. I'm looking forward to definitely John 15. You guys want to be here for that. I'm the vine, you're the branches. That's going to be huge about discipleship. Um, John 14 through 17, the high priestly prayer, um, Christ's prayer for the world and for the disciples. And then, of course, the crucifixion and John 21, Peter's restoration. I mean, there's just so many highlights in the Gospel of John. And, uh, and one of the passages that I really look forward to studying is today's passage, John 8, 12 through 20, particularly John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. In fact, the first place I ever learned was, I am the light of the world. Nobody sings that song anymore. It's, it died off. But, I mean, there were four chords to it, and that's all the four chords I knew. And I played that song night and day, and um, this text is definitely near to my heart. Now, before we gaze deeply upon the beauty of Christ as the light of the world, we need to first consider the extreme darkness of the world in which Christ shines. To really appreciate Christ as the light we need to understand the context. We need to understand how dark the world is in which you and I live in. And the first truth that we start out with is that the world is in extreme darkness. The world is in extreme darkness. And where is it, where is it the darkest? It is darkest in the heart of man. In the heart of man. There's a book that I was reading and halfway through I couldn't continue because it was so disturbing. I believe any parent here would not be able to finish that book. I think any of the ladies here would not get over 10 pages of this book. Um, The reality of the world's corruption, the darkness, the graphic portrayal of the darkness of this world is so um, clearly portrayed, it is a disturbing book, to say the least. No punches are pulled. The book's called Hitler's Willing Executioners. Hitler's Willing Executioners. The book's purpose is to try and explain how normal citizens of Germany, bankers, firemen, teachers, were driven to mass murder. No, driven is a wrong word. They were willing. They were volunteering. They were so eager to commit mass murder of men, women, and children. They would go out to these cities. And if they were reluctant, they didn't have to search so hard to find the women and children who were hiding in basements, hiding in in secret closets. No, they were willing. They made an extra effort to find them, to murder them. And the book tries to explain the dynamics of what was occurring. The book begins with a letter from a Captain Wolfgang Hoffman. Captain Hoffman was a, a zealous executioner of Jews. 
as the commander of police battalion 101, he led his men, who were not SS soldiers. They were policemen. They were ordinary Germans. In the gruesome slaughter of tens of thousands of Jewish women, men, women, and children in the country of Poland. Yet in the midst of his genocidal activities, he stridently disobeyed an order that he deemed was morally objectionable. An order was given down and he considered it objectionable. He refused to obey. What was this morally objectionable order? His commanders called the men to promise not to steal or plunder the poles without paying for the products. They asked them, asked the men to sign a declaration saying they will not steal from the poles. This captain refused to sign such a declaration where he said it went against his honor and conscience. He said, I'm an officer. For someone to presume that I would steal without paying for something is they're questioning my integrity. I don't need to sign a piece of paper to promise I won't steal. I'm a man of honor. He's writing this all the while he is murdering torturing men, women, and children. The author of the book writes, quote, Hoffman's letter is astonishing and instructive for a number of reasons. Here is an officer who had already led his men in the genocidal murder of children. Yet he deemed it offensive that anyone might question his honor, honesty, and integrity. The book recounts confiscated letters written home by these men. They wrote their wives love letters, letters of care and affection, talking about their old jobs and asking about the children, about the families. And inserted in these letters are pictures of their accomplishments on the field. The pictures are of them cutting the beards of Orthodox Jewish men, mocking them. Pictures of them executing Jewish families. Picture after picture of corpses Women and children being tortured and dying. And these pictures are inserted in love letters to their own wives back at home. The fact that such pictures are inserted in love letters reveals the extreme darkness that exists in the heart of all men. Normal citizens. That's why this book was a New York Times bestseller. If Germans one of the most educated, intelligent, scientifically advanced nation in the world, and normal moral citizens can accomplish such heinous acts, what does it say about the heart of mankind? Not just in history. Today we see the same corruption being acted out. Columbine High School, student body of 900, two seniors, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, went into a rampage. They used four guns, two sawed-off shotguns, one semi-automatic 9mm rifle, one semi-automatic pistol, armed with at least 30 explosive devices. Systematically and carefully, one by one, they killed 13 students and one teacher, and they both committed suicide. People are, that are in the news today, Saddam Hussein, a mass murder of his own people. I don't know if you've seen the footage of... of of dead bodies, children being gassed and lying dead, holding to their moms, 
holding on to their moms. North Korean dictator Kim Jong-il, his torture prisons, and the accounts of what, he, what he's done to mass the people. What about Pol Pot, a mass murderer? At the end of his life, when he was interviewed by a reporter, he said, I have a clear conscience. These are the height of the darkness and the murder of, of, of height of darkness in, the, in mankind, what's in, the, in a man's heart, and the height of which is the murder of God's son. What did mankind accomplish? What did the corruption, the darkness, the ignorance, the sinfulness of man accomplish? They killed God's holy and perfect son. They not only hated him, at the first opportunity, they murdered him. And again, it is not just in history. It is not just in the past. It is in the present. Sin is a current phenomenon. Sin is so rampant today in our century, in our country. It is so widespread. It is pandemic. It is endemic to our culture. Sin is tolerated and practiced by the whole strata of humanity in this country. From leaders in politics, leaders in churches, all the way down to the rest. In fact, sin has become the very fabric of our lives. We have already seen that. Sex, alcohol, drugs, abuse, abortion, euthanasia, terrorism, war, oppression, pornography, filthy language. We, we've, we've seen in our own generation people inventing ways of temptation, inventing new ways to sin. What was considered scandalous and shocking, things like adultery, is commonplace today. Nobody even winks an eye. No one is shameful. Embarrassment, guilt, remorse, shame. These words have been wiped away from the English vocabulary because they no longer exist. There is no sense of humility, just eagles gone wild to fulfill uncontrolled and unrestrained passion that leads to dishonoring of bodies in every direction and it just continues to grow. It's a ruinous and devastating cycle where sin is both the cause and the effect where sin causes more sin, and sin produces more sin. Sin is the cause, sin is the result. And that is the death of the darkness of the world. What is the reason for this darkness? First reason is the fall of man. When Eve, and Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, sinned into the world, and death came to all men. From that point on, Sin reigned. Second reason for this darkness is the rejection of the light. John 3.19 Apostle John sums it up well. This is the verdict. This is the conclusion. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Sin is the reason for this darkness. Men reject the light. And it is in this context our Lord was born. It is in this extreme darkness that our Lord came into the world as a light to lead His people out of this darkness and into His light. Well, let's go to the text for this morning. John eight twelve through 20 Just a little bit of catch-up. We haven't been in the Gospel of John for several weeks. We're still in the midst of the period in our Lord's ministry, 
known as the period of controversy, starting with chapter 5, antagonism, opposition against Christ has increased. In chapters 8 and 9, we are in the eye of the storm. These chapters are filled with venomous assaults made upon the Savior by the Pharisees and scribes and the people of Israel. The leaders, the Jewish leaders of Israel are determined. They are set to discredit Christ, discredit Jesus before the masses. In chapter 8 verse 12, we find ourselves, find our Lord still in the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the last day of the feast. And it's too involved to get into here, but we looked at how John 7.52 through 8.11 is a text looking for its context. We would see that verses um, John 7.51 directly goes, 7.52 goes directly to um, John 8.12. So he's still in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the last great day of the feast. And it is in this context, our Lord speaks again in verse 12, and He says to them these awesome and glorious words. He says, He said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Now contrast that with the darkness that existed then, the hearts of men and the world as they knew it. Same today. Contrast that with Christ saying He is the light. Just Step back a little bit for a moment and consider that grand contrast. This ruinous, fallen world where murder, mayhem is common and Christ says, I am the light. Now the issue is, again, always, what did Christ mean by that? What was he referring to? There are four interpretations proposed by various commentators, various Bible students. View one is that He was pointing to his deity. He was pointing to his deity, that he was God, that he is God, excuse me. In 1 John, John says that there are three things which God is said to be. God is said to be three things. John 4.24, God is spirit. 1 John 1.5, God is light. 1 John 4.8, God is love. God is these three things, spirit, light, and love. And by Christ saying that he is light, he's pointing to his absolute deity, that he is God in flesh. This is the second of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Our Lord made seven statements where in John 6.35, he said, I am the bread of life. 8.12, I am the light of the world. 10.9, I am the gate. 10.11, I am the good shepherd. 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. 14.6, 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 15.5, I am the vine. Many believe that our Lord, by saying that He is light, pure, perfect, pointing to His holiness, He is revealing His deity, that He is God. The second view is that He is pointing to His role as the Messiah. That He is the promised Messiah. In the Feast of Tabernacles, the Talmud states that every night of the festive week, the temple area, specifically the court of women, that's where almost everyone gathered to teach and dialogue and give their offerings. 
they had four large candelabras that were lit every night. Huge candelabras. And these candles, these light fixtures, brightly illuminated the whole courtyard. They considered this event the joy of the feast. And the men would come around these lights and they would dance and they would rejoice. These lights pointed to the coming Messiah. When the Messiah would come, they won't need these artificial lights anymore because the Messiah will be our light. Old Testament passages like Psalm 27.1, which we read this morning. Isaiah 16.19-22. Giving you guys a lot of verses this morning. Malachi 4.2. Isaiah 49.6. All these verses point to the Messiah's role as a light for the people. That he would be the light for the people of Israel. Now, let me put your bulletin in John 8 and turn with me to Luke chapter 2, 25. And we see an individual, uh, an individual example of this kind of messianic expectation in the time of Christ. In Luke 2, 25, we find this man named Simeon. He is called righteous He is called devout. He is an aged man. He is waiting, verse 25, for the redemption of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It was revealed to him, verse 26, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christos, Greek for anointed, the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, verse 27. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Verse 32, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So based upon these things, many commentators believe that our Lord's statement on the lot of the world was pointing to his identity as the Messiah. View three is, in one word, illumination. Illumination. That our Lord was pointing to himself as the one who would enlighten men's hearts and men's minds. John 1.9 The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. The word enlightens, meaning he came to remove the darkness, remove the error, the ignorance from men's hearts, men's minds. Our Lord came, and he's a light in the sense that he would enlighten men to discern truth from error. Those are the first three views. Now, there is definitely overlap in these views. I'm not going to stand up here and say categorically that one view is 100% right and all the other views are all wrong. No, there was a lot of overlap. It is truth by degrees. But I believe view four is the correct one. And, you know, as you teach, you always want to put your, the view that you believe last. It's going to give it extra strength. (laughs) View four is, I would say, pillar of fire. Pillar of fire, does that ring a bell? There definitely was a dimming of the candles on the last night of the feast. And on the previous nights, the whole court there was illumined. But on this night, the court there was dark. Our Lord, 
He knows drama. He knows, he knows timing. He seizes this moment to dramatically declare that these lights are temporary, but that he is the light of the world. Now, I don't believe he is specifically pointing to his deity, so, although there are some elements of that involved. I don't believe he's pointing to his messianic role, although, yes, there is that element involved. I don't think he is stating his role as the one who is enlightening men's hearts. I believe he is pointing to the Old Testament. He was referring to a time when the nation of Israel was in darkness just like this. Extreme darkness. In the middle of the wilderness of Paran, they were journeying this nation in complete darkness and there was a light that led them through for 40 years and led them to this place, the promised land. I believe this is a view for two reasons. First of all, the literary context. The literary context, in a way, as we study through the Gospel of John, we are studying the Old Testament. We're not in the New Covenant time yet. New Covenant starts with the resurrection of Christ. So, it might be kind of surprising, but the Gospels are still Old Testament. So, so much of the Gospel of John, the background, definitely, is the Old Testament. And now, starting from chapter, chapters 3, 6, 7, and 8, the background is particularly the, the, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. That's the background. Remember John chapter 3, after our, in our Lord's dialogue with Nicodemus, he said in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Now what is our Lord talking about? Remember we studied this? That in the desert, because of judgment, God sent venomous snakes. And all who were bitten were stricken with illness and they were dying. And Moses pleaded to God, save these people. And God instructed him and he gave a broad snake and he lifted up in a pole. And everyone who saw that snake was healed. It's interesting, isn't it? That they were bitten by snakes and to be cured of that poison, they had to look to a snake. Christ was saying, that's the type of me. I am the anti-type. I am the fulfillment of that broad snake. Because you are all bitten by sin. That's why you are dying. I'll be lifted up and I'll become sin for you. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 God, He became sin for us. And anyone who looks upon Christ with faith will be healed of sin and death. John 3. What about John chapter 6? These masses of people were surrounding Christ wanting bread. And Christ says, your forefathers ate bread in the desert and they died. And what does he say? I am the living bread. You eat me and you will live forever. Again, pointing back to their wandering in the desert 40 years. What about John chapter 7, 37, 38? Christ stands up and says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What is he pointing to? Remember while they were wandering in the desert? They had many complaints. The chief among all is, we are thirsty. We want water. Now, Surin and I traveled to the wilderness of Paran in the middle of July. Trust us. It is hotter than Riverside over there, right? In the middle of summer. I mean, it is desolate. It is, it is unbelievable. Nothing lives in the wilderness of Paran. 
you want to have, make sure you have one thing is water when you're, when you're hiking in, in that wilderness. And what did, the, what did Moses do? God told them, speak to that rock and it will gush out water. Or well, instead of speaking to it, he struck it twice and Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. But nevertheless, water gushed out. In 1 Corinthians 10, 3-4, Paul says, that rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10-4. So again, in John 7, Christ is saying, that was me. I'm the rock. But see, that's the pipe. They drank, but they still died. Even though it was miraculous water, the substance didn't have any spiritual efficaciousness, spiritual power. They still died. But if any man drinks from me, they'll live forever. John chapter 8, verse 12. Here they are, last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The purpose of the Tabernacle Feast was a memorial to remember their wandering in the wilderness. Remember? We studied this historical context where they, they came out of their homes. They built uh, tents all over the city. And they slept in booths, tabernacles and tents. To remember how, how their ancestors lived in the wilderness. And now at the close of the tabernacles, with the sun setting and not cloaked in darkness, the whole temple area is dark. Our Lord once again points to the Old Testament. In Exodus thirteen nineteen, it says that Moses took out the bone, Joseph's bones because Joseph made his son solemnly swear that when God redeems, delivers us, out of this land and brings us back to the promised land, land promised to our forefathers, you will take my bones. Moses does that. And as they enter the wilderness, there's divine guidance, cloud by day, fire by night. That physical light led Israel through the darkness of the wilderness to the promised land. In the extreme darkness of the wilderness, the Israelites every night could look up Beyond the horizon, they could see the fire of God, the light of God, leading them to the dangers, pointing the way they should go. For them, it it represented God's salvation. And our Lord is saying, just as the light led Israel to the land of Canaan, I am the spiritual light. I am the true light that leads the world to salvation. He says, I'm a light not just for Israel, but for the whole world. In this darkness of sin, corruption and death, I am that solitary light. That article in the Greek is there. The light. I am the only true light. Any man would follow me like your ancestors followed that light. He will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a promise. What a grand promise. What does it mean to follow Christ Again, John, our Lord, they're using different words for faith to show how faith is active. It is not passive. It is not a dead emotion. It is not a passive emotion. It is something that's vibrant, something that's alive. It is akin to eating. It is akin to drinking. It is, it is beholding. It is stretching out. It is looking. And one word Christ uses to describe faith is the act of following Another word for believing. It is the same act of soul, only seen from a different perspective. As Israel followed the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, as they journeyed to the desert, they moved whenever it moved. They stopped whenever it stopped. 
When they turn left, they turn left. When they turn right, they turn right. They ask no questions. They marched on by faith. Our Lord is saying, in like manner, any man who follows me, believes in me, trusts in me, will obey me, he will have the light of what? Of life, of eternal life. It's not some physical possession. He's not giving you some land. He's giving you this eternal possession called eternal life. Man, how powerful is that? Just picture that scene. They're in the temple area. It is completely dark. And our Lord declares, offers all the hearers and all the readers the offer of salvation. Now, what is absurd, what is just unbelievable is the response of the Pharisees. Again, it, it depicts the darkness in the heart of man. It depicts the height of Christ and the lowliness of man. The Pharisees said to him, verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They're not even dealing with this testimony, this incredible statement. They're quibbling over legalities. A legal technicality. That because Jesus is testifying to himself, his testimony can't be true. It is automatically false. Well, our Lord gives them a three-part defense why they are wrong. Number one, verse 14, his origin and destination. The first reason he is right, first reason his defense or his testimony, his claim is true, is his origin and destination. Destination. The defense of our Lord is in one word, awesome. Now, they, our Lord is saying the first qualification of a witness is he, he needs to have seen something. He needs to be a witness to be, to be able to testify to something. These Jewish leaders spoke with great authority about things that they've never seen, that they've never experienced. And yet they propped themselves as authorities and spoke with brashness and pride. Our Lord answered, verse 14, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I am coming, came from and where I am going. You do not know where I come from or where I am going. Only our Lord can testify about heavenly things because He's been there. And that's His destiny. They are not qualified as a witness. Only He knows. His opponents do not know where he has come from, know where he is going. He has a unique right and authority to make this claim. His second defense is verse 15, his divine insight. His divine insight. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. These Jewish leaders judged by outward appearance, by earthly standards. Their judgment is based on the flesh. It's limited, it's tainted and biased. Our Lord is not saying, I judge no one. No, He, he judges the leaders of Israel. What He's saying is, I judge no one, contrasting them based on external appearances, on outward appearances. My judgment is true because it's based on the divine. My judgment is unlimited. It is pure. It is impartial. You judge, I am not the light of the world, but merely a countryman from Galilee, the son of Joseph. That's not the basis of my judgment. 
My judgment is based on my divine and perfect knowledge, omniscient knowledge of all men. He is the one, only one qualified to judge. Thirdly, his judgment is in complete unity with God the Father. His judgment is in complete unity with God the Father. Verses 16 through 18. Our Lord has the unique authority, not because He is the only eyewitness testimony, not because of His divine testimony. Our Lord pronounces the truthfulness of His claim that He is the light of this world because God the Father testifies with Jesus in His behalf. The Father declares it as well. Verse 16, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me, in your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Our Lord is saying, My judgment is according to truth, for it is the judgment of God Himself. Later on in John 10.30, He would make this statement, I, I and my Father are one. I and the Father are one. He says here in verse 18, The Father who sent me bears witness about me. And how does the Father bear witness? Um, three ways. First is the predictive prophecies of the Old Testament. The prophecies made about Christ that He has fulfilled time and again throughout His life and ministry. It's through His personhood. These prophecies point to Jesus. Secondly, the miracles that he's performing. Nicodemus came to him and said, no one can perform these miracles unless they were from God. The teacher of Israel, a member of the Sanhedrin, acknowledged that you are from God because God is affirming you through these miracles. And third testimony from God towards the Son is in Matthew 3.17, the audible voice. For God says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Well, suffice to say, they are not convinced. They are not convinced, not because our Lord's arguments, our Lord's defense is inadequate. They're, they're not convinced because of the ignorance of their hearts. Because they're still in darkness. Their response, verse 19 is, where is your father? Where is your father? They're thinking about Joseph. Isn't he dead? Are you talking to the dead here? Where is your father? How can he testify towards your uh, role as the light of the world if he's dead? They're clueless about what the Lord is saying. Verse 19. Talked about this before. But in a bold way, in a courageous way. He knows they're, out to, they're, they're set to kill him. They have murderous intent. He says to them, You know neither me nor my father. <coughs> they do not know him. And they certainly do not know God the Father. These Jews are the religious elite. They are the rulers of the nation. Yet they do not know the most fundamental truths of their religion. The identity of God and the identity of God's Son. 
He says, if you knew me, you would know my Father. The fact that you don't know me reveals you don't know God himself. Well, in all of this, we might look at this passage and see our Lord is playing defense. Our Lord is being attacked. He's a victim. And these religious leaders are the ones in charge. They're the ones in authority. But that's not what's happening. Look at verse 20. John makes a very significant parenthetical remark in verse 20. It is like John's a photographer. John takes a picture of Jesus on the light of the world. Takes a picture of the Pharisees. Well, you can't make that testimony. You're by yourself. Goes back to Jesus. It's a picture of his defense. And goes back to the Pharisees. Where is your father? Back to Jesus. With those pictures alone, we would think our Lord's being attacked. He's a victim. But John does something for us. In verse 20, he steps back. He gets out his wide-angle lens, puts on his camera, and takes a picture, a big picture of the whole temple scene. In verse 20, John tells us, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. He is in the treasury where the offering boxes are kept. This is what William Hendrickson says. Against the wall in the court of women stood 13 trumpet-shaped chests in which the people deposited their gifts for various causes. Hence, they were taking part of the whole. This court was sometimes called the treasury. It was here where the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, held their sessions. End quote. The Sanhedrin were hostile to Jesus. Our Lord was in their territory. I'm sure they were in their midst. And our Lord cries out, I am the light of the world. You don't know the Father. Jesus is not in Galilee, in some corner by a river preaching this message. He's not in the Mount of Olives near Gethsemane or on the other side of the mountain preaching this message. He's in their territory, in their front door, declaring the hypocrisy of the leaders of Israel and declaring his identity as their only hope, as the only source of life and declaring that they don't know God. Head-to-head confrontation with the leaders of Israel, and our Lord had no fear. He was bold and courageous, for He knew God the Father. He knew God the Father. Another evidence. His time had not yet come. They had no authority over Him. You know, final closing thought. I just have one thought for all of us this morning. As we consider Christ as the light of the world, let us all consider two things. Consider Scripture and today's news. We know from Scripture and today's newspaper that we live in a fallen world. And that the greater the darkness, brighter the light. Our Lord is not physically here to shine His light. Remember He said, I'll be with you for a short while. 
My light is still here, but it will be gone. He tells his disciples that. So no, you know, no one can see the light of Christ today. They can only see the light of Christ through the church, through Christians. Matthew five fourteen through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light, the light, the source of which is Christ, reflected on us towards this world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians 5, 8-17 For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. We are agents that expose sin and reflect the beauty of Christ. John 1, 6-9 I think we are um, modern day John the Baptist. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And that is our opportunity in our lives, to our generation, to this dark world. We are given the privilege and the opportunity to point people to Christ and to reflect the beauty and the glory of Christ's light to this dying world. You know, I'm sure by now all of you have heard, over the, heard or read about the nightclub fire in Rhode Island over the weekend. 300 people in the club. Death toll was 96 and still counting. The firefighters were saying that the bodies were found on top of each other like timbers. Burned to a crisp. They have to go to dental records because they have no DNA evidence. They, they, the bodies are so charred, they can't identify the bodies. A man named Mr. Harold Pansiera was next to the front exit when the fire broke out. In his interview, he recounted how after he escaped, he saw the building completely engulfed in flames. He could hear the people screaming, crying out that they were on fire. He could hear their screams. Some left the scene. He didn't leave the scene. But he turned back trying to help those in trouble. He went near the front exit and with the building billowing with black smoke, he couldn't see anything. He couldn't see anyone. He said he could hear one person screaming just a few feet from the door. But because of the smoke and the fire, could not see him, but only hear him crying out. The man was screaming out, my body's on fire. He got snow and he was throwing it in. And he asked the man, do you feel the snow? And the man cried out, yes, I feel the snow. They're only a few feet apart. It was so dark he couldn't see. Mr. Harold Passiera said, crawl to the snow, crawl towards my voice. 
The man crawled past Sarah, stepped in, and he managed to save him. He was badly burned. His face was charred. Body was burned. But he got him, he got him out alive. Mr. Pansiera tried to keep the man alert for the paramedics came. He asked if he had any family. He asked if he had any children. And the man said yes. What a horrifying event. People out for the night at a bar, drinking, partying, not realizing that death is imminent. They're living in darkness. And they're dying in darkness. They're dying in darkness. Now as believers, do we hear their screams for help? Do we hear it? Do you hear it? Do you hear these men and women who are dying in sin, lost in darkness, screaming out for help? Do we have compassion at how lost they are in darkness with no one to help? Do we see that Jesus is their only hope, their only light, He's the only one? How can they see it unless we show it to them? How can they see it unless we show it to them? Are we just as Christians soaking it in? Enjoying the Christian life? Enjoying Cornerstone Country Club? Or do we see that practically for that man, Mr. Pansera was his only hope. If Mr. Pansera left the scene, that man is dead. His family is without a husband. A wife is without a husband. Children are without their father. It was up to this one man. Do we see that, that practically that men and women are dying in sin and darkness and Christ is not here. He is lifted up. He has no light to shine in this world. His only light is through the Word of God and through our lives and through our testimony and through our ministry of sharing the Gospel. Do you and I see that? And go to the Lord this, this day and, and listen for their cry. Do you hear them screaming in darkness? And you're the only one. There are people in our lives where, where practically speaking, we're their only link to the gospel. We are. What will you do? What will you do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is my prayer that what moves our hearts is not, it's not anything else except for the Holy Spirit. What moves our hearts will be the beauty of Christ as the light of this darkened and wicked and evil world that you chose to come and, and show your light to this world that they might be saved. And you gave that truth to your disciples and they in turn passed it down to a generation of beloved believers and saints and they've been given to us. And it is now, it's our responsibility, it's our opportunity to be a light to this world that we might guide and lead and point them towards the source of our light, which is Jesus Christ, so that they might be saved, that they might have the light of life. What a tragedy it would be for believers today 
to abdicate that responsibility, to turn a deaf ear to the cries, to close our eyes to the needs of this desperate world. What a great tragedy that would be. Lord, that we would be persuaded by the noble theme that you are the light of this world and that your invitation stands firm today. And may we, as a city on a hill, uh, shine to this world that men might be saved. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.